With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Coming up on this week's show, it's Nintendo's biggest leak to date. But what's in GigaLeak? MSM Messenger is back. And we're joined by Joe from the amazing YouTube channel, GameSack. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 235, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And welcome to this week's show. I can't believe it's actually our final show of July already. You know, I was thinking actually this time last year, I think we'd done about like six retro shows and expos all around the world. We'd done... Uh, Ireland, Ravi and I went to, um, we've been in Norway, Poland I've been out to as well, a couple in the UK, uh, we're getting ready to go to Germany. This year, obviously, everything's kind of been on hold, but we're actually going to be doing one, and uh, Ravi, I'm going to be seeing you for the first time in about four months next weekend. Yeah, so like, usually we do international events, and like, I was looking at my calendar and it was kind of going, go to Norway today, go to here today, yeah. I was meant to go to San Francisco, and all got cancelled. And I thought, you know what, let's start a small local kind of thing. And I think I think this is going to be the future, you know, small local gatherings and then kind of building up from there. So I've started a tiny local Amiga group for the uh, Midlands region, and that's called the Robin Hood Amiga group. Uh, the first meeting is sold out, I'm afraid, because we're basically limited to tickets because we want to keep it safe, have social distancing and everything. So we're, we're limiting numbers to 15. But uh, you should be able to book for the next meeting as well. And hopefully each meeting, we can probably increase it by five. And that's going to be on the sat- second Saturday of every month. So that's Robin Hood Amiga dot group. The last show that we went to would have been Ireland when you and I went out there in January. Yeah. So it's going to be cool. I think like, people know. are going to be happy just to get together and have a cup of tea and yeah. not be with their family. <laughs> you know, and be able to talk about computers and just escape for a few hours. Oh, my missus can't wait to have a break from me on a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> there you go. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, hopefully that's going to expand. I mean, we've got people coming from, like, Doncaster and Sheffield and Leeds and stuff as well. So um, Yeah, and yeah, I wanted kind of small numbers on the first one because, yeah. you know, I'm pretty nervous doing this and I've got all the PPE ready and stuff. And uh, uh, Ravi's on it. Yeah, I'm properly on it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, if you're doing a join us in the future, though, I'll link that up in our show notes. Now, of course, lots to talk about in this week's show. I'm hoping that Joe and I don't sound too sleepy on uh, the interview that we're doing this week. <laughs> so, I mean, usually, I'll be honest, Friday night, normally have a couple of beers, a couple of glasses of wine, you know, with the missus, a bit of dinner. Last Friday, none of that, because 11pm, I was on the uh, the Retro Buzz show um, on YouTube, and they're based in the, uh, the East Coast of America. So we did that from 11pm uh, to 1 in the morning. I was on with those guys, chatting about all things retro, and uh, shout out to Glenn and the team. I know they're listeners to the Retro, the, the big fans of the show. And uh, that was a giggle. And then 1 o'clock in the morning, that finished. I went to get a strong coffee, and then Joe and I did an interview with that Joe from GameSack at 2 a.m. Yeah, it was a little bit of a late one. I really enjoyed it. And it was a, it was nice, you know, kind of doing it at home and stuff like that and having that ability to do it. So I really enjoyed it. And I made the most of the night. I wasn't 
being interviewed by anybody or anything like that. I sat talking to Ravi most of the night uh, over a messenger while I was drinking uh, Iron Brew and watching the Mortal Kombat films <laughs> to keep myself up. So it was still a retro night for me. I owe you one, boys. That 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 was an epic effort. But I did just see Joe sitting there eating sweets, and just <laughs> sending me pictures of like him surrounded by junk food. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, that was like every ten-year-old's dream that night. You had Joe. Yeah, it was a really good night. My missus, my missus went to bed, and I was just like, "Right, this is it. I'm slobbing now for like I think I slobbed out for about four hours before we did it." <laughs> Now, because uh, Joe from GameSack, he's based in uh, Mountain Time. I don't think we'd, any, any of us had ever heard of Mountain Time before. Then we checked the time difference, and I'll be honest, it was worth waiting up for because, uh, you know, we've been big fans of GameSack, I mean, pretty much since it started. It's actually 10 years it's been going next year. And obviously that channel's changed quite a lot. I mean, I'm sure if you listen to our show, you're familiar with GameSack. I'd say one of the the highest production values of any YouTube channel that's dedicated to retro gaming. And their videos go so in-depth as well. I mean, I love the videos where, you know, Joe, it used to be Dave as well. We'll talk into a bit more about why Dave's not on the show anymore in a bit. But obviously, Joe's kept it going. But when they do reviews of, like, systems, he'll generally sit down and do, like, a 40 to 60-minute video covering all the highlights on any individual system. And the stuff in there, like, stop-motion animation. I mean, as you'll hear... These videos take a long time. A lot of effort goes into them. Yeah, I found it really interesting just kind of finding about finding out about like what goes behind goes on behind backstage and stuff like that. Because like you say, there's so much like production, uh, you know, and just so much effort gone into the videos. You know, it doesn't just like they come out like I think it's every Sunday or every other Sunday, you know, and there's a lot, a lot, a lot of effort going into these. So I just found it really fascinating just to kind of hear the story behind it, how he makes the videos and how he got started with Dave as well. I love those uh, versus ones that they do. So they have this yeah. system versus this, and they kind of play play them off against each other. And it was quite a lot of, um, when Dave was on there, it was quite a lot of Nintendo versus Sega mm. kind yeah. of playing off against each other, we, which was really good fun. We may have planted the seed for another versus episode for him. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I mean, being a Sega fanboy, you, Joe, our Joe Fox, you're in your element talking to uh, Joe from Game Center. Yeah, I was in my element and I thought he was going to be a lot more, you know, kind of like, yeah, Sega, but he was quite chill about it. He was like, yeah, you know, Sega is my favourite, but it was it was cool to hear him talking about like Neo Geo and Nintendo and stuff because he's a big fan of all kind of like game companies and stuff, you know, and obviously on the channel, they probably just kind of big up the Sega a little bit more, but I think I thought that was really cool. And there is some nice Dreamcast chat coming up as well. And also, I mean, Sega have kind of done that thing recently where they kind of seem to be looking back to the roots a little bit. So it was quite interesting to chat to Joe to find out what he thinks of that, you know, being like a lifelong Sega fanboy. So uh, that is coming up. Joe from GameSack on the Retro Hour podcast in around 20 minutes from now. Now, of course, lots of big stories to get through this week. I think maybe even the biggest retro gaming story of the year so far that happened just as we released last week's show. Now, there's two big releases on Friday and Saturday that has been nicknamed the Nintendo GigaLeak. Now, before we talk about this, I think it's important just to put a little disclaimer out there. Obviously, the way this was acquired, I mean, if you haven't heard about this, it was essentially a massive leak of Nintendo source code. And this was obtained illegally. Yeah, you know, this all, was released on All this is uh, Nintendo's basically proprietary software. So, yeah. you know, what's been leaked has been property of Nintendo. But I think it's interesting the split in the community actually around this. Some people have been like, as you know, a preservationist, the stuff that's in here, and as a Nintendo fan, 
it's fascinating stuff to look through and things that we probably wouldn't have ever found out about before that's been behind closed doors for like, you know, 25, 30 years. But some people are saying, look, it's stolen material. We shouldn't be downloading and looking through this kind of thing. But I think for a lot of Nintendo fans, the temptation has <laughs> been a little bit too much to ignore it. So, I mean, we don't condone the way this has got out there, but being a group of guys who are really into this stuff, we need to talk about it, I think. And I don't so we ha- think you need to download it either because there's so many articles and yeah. videos that are kind of already dissecting it and going through. So just check those ones out. Yeah, I was going to say, does, does, I've obviously I've not downloaded it or anything like that. Uh, and I'm really interested in it all. And there's some really cool stuff in there, you know, especially for all well, it's pretty much mainly Super Nintendo and N64, isn't it? Mm. But like Ravi says, you, I don't think you do have to download it because there's so much out there already. You just need to Google it, like just literally Google it. And there'll be there's hundreds of articles. People have made like little gifts out of it and stuff like that as well for like the kind of the more interesting points. Oh, you can just listen to us talk about it. Well, yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Try to sell myself short there. <laughs> Come on, Joe. There are uh, other well, the news one... sources available. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's enough on that subject. No, I'm <laughs> There's no reading required when we tell you about it. You know, just sit back. <laughs> now, there was two big drops. I mean, the first one, this is on 4chan, obviously. And uh, this was an anonymous source. The first one that's been uh, nicknamed GigaLeak 1, that was on Friday. And then on Saturday, there was GigaLeak 2 that was mainly Nintendo 64 stuff. So, I mean, I've got a list here of like kind of some of the highlights that we've seen from here. I mean, there are source code to a lot of first-party Nintendo games, including Star Fox 1 and 2, Mario Kart, Yoshi's Island, Link's Awakening, um, F-Zero, a bunch of prototypes in there as well. And also the source code to a lot of kind of Nintendo's emulation platforms are in here. But really interestingly, there's a lot of unused music and graphics in this archive too. Mm. And looking through it, I mean, they've actually got a really precise versioning system. So in a lot of these, you can kind of trace it from, you know, the first day that they started working on a game to kind of the, the bits of the final build. So there's a real overview of kind of what changed during development of these classic games I find really interesting. I mean, the big one that everyone's been talking about is um, the Super Mario 64 stuff. Now, originally that was nicknamed um, Ultra 64 Mario Brothers, and they found a few kind of unused enemies and unused weapons in the game as well. But the big story is that it turns out, it looks like Luigi was actually meant to be in the game. I find that super, super interesting, because obviously most retro gamers know who are fans of Mario and N64 and stuff. Mario 64 know that there was always these huge rumours that uh, Luigi was in the game um, and that Yoshi was in the game. turned out Yoshi was in the game. Like, if he did everything, he was on top of the castle or something. But everybody always went on about how Luigi was in the game. It was originally meant to be two-player and stuff. And there was just, like, no evidence about it. There was always, like, these silly things like uh, the little fountain in the gardens and the boo fountain said, like, Luigi is alive and all this kind of stuff on it. But I think this is incredible, and I think a lot of people are going to be excited about this to find out that he was originally planned for the game. There is a model for him as well, correct me if I'm wrong, on the yeah. uh, on the articles as well. And not only was he going to be in the game, it was going to be a full, full-on full two-player co-op game. That was the original plan, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's an interview with uh, Miyamoto that kind of leads credence to that. Mm. I'll link that up as well. It's quite interesting. It's from a few years ago. They're talking about, um, he was talking about how, you know, the original game was meant to be kind of a split screen. Yeah. So they went into the castle separately, then they met in the corridor. And it actually turned out that the hardware couldn't run it smoothly enough. So instead, you know, they made it a one-player game only. But like you said, then the models and the source code, and actually there are audio files for his player movement in this leak as well. So, um, yeah, it looks like, you know, Luigi 
was actually planned to be in the game as well. So, I mean, you know, when you were a kid, it was always your little brother would play Luigi. Wouldn't you? you know, you pass a controller over. So it would have been cool if it was a two-player game, I think. I don't think my brother would have let me play still. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and there was more stuff in here as well. I mean, Ocarina of Time, there was um, a lot of unused enemies in there. Majora's Mask, it turns out originally that was going to be seven days long. There's like an unused uh, mini archery game that they found in here too. Yeah. Uh, Mario Kart 64, some unused weapons. A feather was meant to be in there. Um, Super Mario World on the SNES, a bunch of unused graphics and characters. And and one thing that a lot of people have been kind of making their own kind of fan art about is the early sprite work of Yoshi, because he looks totally different to the final version. He kind of reminds me of like a little like Disney dinosaur in the original version. And uh, there's that's what I was saying about the gifts of him. There's like quite a few, there's like 10 different designs of him. And it's like each design he slowly becomes what we're familiar with, which I thought mm. was really interesting. But it's cool to see that because it didn't Miyamoto always want Yoshi in the games? He always wanted Mario to ride something. Yeah. Um, so it was cool to kind of see that development from like the early 90s. Well, also, like people are probably wondering where these came from. And they're mm. part of like a series of leaks. So these mm. leaks have come out before, but they haven't been as, as grand as this one. This one was the biggest. And uh, yeah. they've come out of 4chan, that uh, dodgy forum from back in the days. So, you know, there might be more leaks in the future. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of talk about where this has come from, and there's a lot of people kind of, you know, coming up with rumours and things. We don't know for sure, but like you said, I mean, it could indicate there is more out there. And I mean, some people have been saying it's only parts of, like, the games are in here, but actually someone over the weekend has uh, built Dr. Mario. The complete source code has been built from this archive. Oh, really? So it looks like, you know, maybe not all the games are complete, but there is quite a lot of stuff in here already, and, you know, like you said, maybe more to come. Obviously, you know, we, we, we don't condone where it's come from, but I think it is fascinating to look at this kind of thing, don't you think? Yeah, definitely. It's, it's really interesting to see it. And like, like I said before, I don't think you need to download it, but it is fascinating. Now let's move on to the Commodore 64. Here's a headline I never thought I'd read. Smoking meat with your C64. Yeah, especially for you, because you're a veggie, aren't you? <laughs> I, can, I can smoke my veggie burgers. Yeah, yeah, yeah you could do halloumi. Oh, I'm <laughs> yeah. yeah. getting my 64 out over the weekend. <laughs> what on earth is this? What is this, Ravi? This is cool. Like, we've covered temperature readers already on the C64 mm. and how you can check if your cup of tea is warm with a single one. Well, this guy's taking it to the next level, and uh, he's called Deadline. Okay. And he's basically created a program called Smokador 64. Lovely. Which um, <laughs> means you can hook up the connectors on like a smoker. So, you know, ovens these days have temperature, uh, different temperature readers all over yeah. the oven. And yeah. you could tell different parts of the oven. Well, basically, this, this creates a program that will receive these temperature readings and display them on your C64 and you can control it from there as well. So there's like temperature tuning in there. You can even toggle the light on the oven. <laughs> it, it looks really interesting. It's just like a mad kind of a uh, device that's uh, kind of been set up. I mean, the other week we were talking about that Commodore 64 home automation system. <laughs> then you get something like this comes along as well. I think it just proves, you know, it, it is such a versatile system and I love that people are finding like, you know, creative and wacky ways to uh, keep using their Commodore 64s in 2020. Admittedly, this one is a little bit out there. Yeah, and you know, it's still pretty cool though. It's like, just get a bit of basic, that's all you need and uh, just stick the temperature reader on the back. There you go. There you go. It's barbecue season now, so perfect timing. <laughs> 
Now, the PS4 is obviously a system that, you know, you can play old games on it, but not straight away. You generally got to download them from the PlayStation Store. You can't just shove your old PS1 disc in there like you used to on the PS2 and PS3. But some enterprising hackers have actually managed to get a working PlayStation 1 emulator running on the PS4 thanks to help from the Medieval remake. Yeah, so uh, we had Andrew Barnabas on the show who was part of Medieval as well. Fantastic game. Um, The remake came out for the PlayStation 4, but it had the PlayStation 1 version within it. Um, What's actually happened is there's a thing called Sony's Bug Bounty. So basically people are given um, access to different firmware updates and they're basically search for bugs and then get paid for that. Well, one of these got leaked, so it meant that people could put uh, unsigned code on there. And what they actually did was they loaded up this medieval remake and they found that it had an internal PS1 emulator. That's how the PS1 version of medieval was actually being played. So it looks like Sony might have developed this little internal player uh, for the PS4. So they thought, oh, we can we can add extra things in there. So let's try and get some other titles running. And, you know, this emulator, there's a lot of bugs with it. Some menus cause crashes, but they've got a compatibility list coming up now. And, uh, you know, they've got games like Carmageddon working on there, Abe's Odyssey, uh, Nightmare Creatures. It's, it's quite interesting to see all these different titles. And, uh, you know, I think as people play around and tweak the code, it's going to become more of an emulator, but you're also really limited because you've got to have this certain firmware on your PS4. I think it's 6.72. The fact that obviously they just built a PlayStation emulator for the game, it's an easier way of doing it than actually you know, building the game from scratch. It kind of makes sense. Uh, it just makes you wonder why you know, Sony don't just have like a PlayStation emulator on there anyway. I guess they want to sell you the games again. That's why, isn't it? But. Yeah, yeah, like you'd think, you know, they used to have backwards compatibility Mm. on a lot of the old hardware, and uh, that was really good, actually. It would run games really nicely. And this also displays in the PS4 native modes, so it will be displaying in 1080 and stuff, which is kind of like the emulators doing a little bit of upscaling as well. As Jeff Goldblum would say, hackers will um, find a way. (laughs) (laughs) Now, here's a sound that might take you back to um, your teenage years. Does sound familiar? I think I've just been nudged, guys. I just need to go. <laughs> Do you remember that when your screen would wobble all over on MSN Messenger? I used to troll my brother with that, just keep hitting it over and over and over again. Well, obviously, yeah. MSN Messenger, it, you know, it defined a generation. I mean, these days, we all use stuff like, you know, Facebook and WhatsApp and that kind of thing. But MSN was the daddy of instant messenger services, particularly over here. I know um, AIM was very big. America Online was big over in America. I didn't really use that that much. I don't know about you guys. I was always either MSN or Yahoo Messenger back then. I was ICQ and then yeah. straight to MSM and like MSM for a good five years. Well, it was like, you know, the, the ultimate instant messaging tool back in the day. Um, obviously, in the last decade or so, wasn't it? Microsoft closed it down and migrated the servers over to Skype. So essentially, MSN didn't work anymore. The servers were redirected. But now it turns out, if you're kind of missing MSN and those sound effects and nudging your friends, there is a way to reactivate those old versions of MSN Messenger and get them working again. Now, this is thanks to a piece of software called Escargot. And this essentially redirects it and emulates the older MSN Messenger server architecture. So essentially, you can change your servers and get the tools up and running again. 
That's mental because I, I, I remember there were like phases of MSM. So mm. I'll do a bit of MSM history now. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I remember there was like, it started off with a link to kind of IRC and stuff with ASCII text. Do you remember everyone used to have those ridiculously fancy MSM names with lines yeah, yeah. going all over it? Yeah. Tildes and carrots and. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then <laughs> later on, it went to the uh, voice samples. I don't know if you remember that, where people could scream down the mic. They could record a voice sample. Dan, wake up now and just send it, and that will play straight on your PC. And then you could people would drop music samples in. So if you did something, it would be like pretty fly for a white guy or like some <laughs> 90s kind of rock tune or something. A, a little yeah. bit of trivia for you here. That's actually how I met my wife. <laughs> so, on MSM. On MSM. Yeah, she was a friend of a friend and uh, he just added us into a group and we started just sharing metal music because we were like 16. And then uh, from there, we actually met up. <laughs> oh, well, Joe, for your next date night, you can get this working again. You <laughs> exactly. sit down, your laptop. <laughs> I'm going to get it working tonight. It'll just be a little bit of nostalgia there. Like, remember me? What was the name on there? Was it like Butterfly Charlie with loads of little emojis and all that? You know thing? what? It was. It was like, it was, it was literally something really similar to that. But I was at that stage where I'd become mature and just changed mine back to Joe. Just Joe, like... Got rid of all, <laughs> got rid of all the stuff Ravi was just on about. That's probably why you stood out to her. Yeah, <laughs> who's this mature guy? Oh yes, <laughs> Joe. Yeah, well, then obviously we went a bit later on. It, it turned into Windows Live Messenger by the end, didn't it? Yeah, that it got crazy when I think when the big emojis and all the smiley animations came in. That's when it got a bit rubbish. But um, for a few years, it was absolutely mental. I remember going around my friend's house and. I just heard his PC in the room just going, and there was like all this music coming from it and everything. I was like, what's going on? And he goes, oh, just some idiot messaging me. <laughs> so a lot of it didn't have like flood protection or anything, did it? You could just send stuff over and over and over again. Yeah, and the groups yeah. as well. You could get people into groups, drag them in, and they were like, what are you doing? And then suddenly you've got 20 people going mad. So what he's done, I mean, this, this bit of software here, it patches the old versions. So you can use from MSN version 1.0 up to Windows Live Messenger 8. So essentially, you know, all these different, you download this little patch here, it redirects it to the new servers. The downside of it is, this is the caveat, if you want to communicate with someone else in MSN, they also need to download this patch version of it as well. So just by patching your version doesn't mean it's going to instantly open it all up again to all your friends and everything. So that's kind of the downside, but it does mean that the software is usable if you've got a friend who's crazy or maybe sad enough to actually do this with you as well. Interestingly, though, if you go on the website here, they've got a Discord server and an IRC server. No messenger group. Come on, guys. <laughs> oh, <that's> the irony. <laughs> do you think I'll be able to make a MSM to Discord bridge? That would be interesting. <laughs> if anyone can, rather you can. <laughs> I think, though, lads, I think for next week's show, though, we should all download this and plan the show on, uh, on MSN again for all time. So. That sounds like a good idea. <laughs> Did you just hear all the nudges and everything going across? <laughs> Ravi sending us some music constantly. Yeah, maybe not such a good idea. Peter Andre. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right then, before we get into our chat with uh, Joe from GameSack, a little interesting video. I haven't had a chance to watch this yet, but I know, um, Ravi, you sent me a link to this saying it was really cool. This is our good friend Perry Fractic, Retro Recipes, Christian Simpson. Um, he is like the guy when it comes to making really out there wacky kind of stuff he's actually linked up a proper floppy drive to one of the new commodore 64s yeah so um for ages people were trying to work out um 
how to run the floppy drive on the new C64. And they were all trying to format these external floppy drives, um, you know, these little USB ones. Yeah. And it turned out that it was actually the Mac format. So you needed to put it into a Mac, format the floppy drive that way, and it would read. And you would be able to load it like about six games off it, and you can read them on the C64 Mini. Now, of course, Barry Fatrick loves to take it to the next level. <laughs> so he got a 3D printed design of the um, 1541 floppy drive and basically shrank it down and did it so he could fit this external drive inside and totally themed it so it's exact kind of proportions. And it looks fantastic sitting next to the original, well, sitting next to the uh, mini case. It looks really nice. I mean, people might be like, what's the point? Why don't you just put an SD card in or something like that? But I think there is something to be said about having, you know, the, the experience of using floppy disks, even though this is a three and a half inch drive and not many people use those on the 64s back in the day, did they? No, no, it, it would have been harder to do the um, bigger drives. But, you know, it just gives that nice aesthetic and that's how people had it set up. You know, I, I think it'd be great to have a dot matrix printer on there or something. <laughs> no, actually, I was looking for uh, ribbons over the weekend for my dot matrix. I thought, I'm going to have a go on that. Yeah, get, get that set up. I've got one in the garage. I even, except the ribbons on them, you can kind of re-ink them, can't you? Just spray them or something, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think they're still efficient. A lot of banks still use them, don't they? Yeah, I, I don't know if I told the story on the show before, but I remember we were going for uh, to get a mortgage, and I, I needed like a year's worth of bank statements. And then I heard the uh, the teller at the bank started to print something out the dot matrix, and I'm like, "You're not doing the whole thing on that, are you?" She said, "No, it's just your receipt. Don't worry." That would have taken a while. <laughs> so if you do want to check out the video that Christine did, I'll put a link to that and everything else we talked about in our show notes at theretrohour.com. And of course, on our website, theretrohour.com, that is where you can help the future of this podcast. Now, we do have a Patreon running at the moment, and we set this up in the start of the year. Really, the idea behind the Patreon is that, you know, thanks to you guys' support, we can keep this show going. It's going to pay for equipment, spaces to do the show in, and essentially just mean that we've got a future of this podcast because we're doing the show remotely at the moment i'm in the studio that we always traditionally use but again it's not a studio that we own so really having our own stuff is just going to make this a lot easier so thank you so much for your donations so far and of course for helping out the show 100 of what you donate goes back into the running of it and you will get a mention on a future episode in the hall of fame just like this week thank you so much to edward fitzpatrick fabrice deville falco loffler graeme sinclair and jake warrell who all made donations into the running of the show. And if you'd like to help out, I mean, I was looking at the teas we did the other day. I mean, one of the lowest one is like $4 a month. That's like, what, a dollar a week for the show. And you get it ad-free. Sometimes you get it early. And, of course, you'll be helping us out as well. So if you can help, that would be massively appreciated. And you'll find it at theretrohour.com. Right now, let's get into this amazing chat that we did with one of our favorite YouTubers. Joe from GameSack is next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Owl Podcast and it's time to welcome on this week's very special guest and we are so thrilled to be joined by our guest this week. You know, Joe and I have been such big fans of this YouTube channel for uh, coming up on 10 years now. Let's welcome Joe from the amazing GameSack. Hello. Hello. How's it going? Very good, thank you. Now, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us this week. I mean, like I mentioned then, GameSack is coming up on its... 10th anniversary next year is that right that's right coming in april i believe yeah did you ever envision that when he started the channel you'd still be doing it a decade later <laughs> <laughs> no actually i i didn't even have any idea it would go anywhere near this long so i'm kind of pleasantly surprised to say the least 
Well, obviously, we're going to get a bit more into the kind of content that you do on your channel. I'm sure everyone listening to our show has watched GameSec before. Um, but let's kind of get a little bit of background on you. I mean, what kind of started your gaming journey then? Where did your first gaming experience happen and where did it all start for you? Well, first gaming experience would be hard to say, but I really like, you know, playing games in the arcade, like in the, the supermarkets back in the day and in local arcades. And then, you know, the Atari came out, but I never personally had one, but I would play it at friends. But my own personal, the first video game console that I personally owned that I could call my own was the Sega Master System. And that just spoke to me because I liked a lot of Sega's games in the arcade. So I had to get the Master System and I just loved it. And that's just, I've been going since then. What was the gaming scene like where you grew up? Uh, just for America, it was basically standard. You know, we there was arcade games scattered in supermarkets, <laughs> a few of them. Uh, most supermarkets might have three at the most. And then there was, you know, dedicated arcades, uh, like in the malls and whatnot that I'd love to go to, but I could only go to on the weekends, like when my parents would take me and give me $5 and I could just buy a bunch of tokens and whatnot. Um, and that was just wonderful. But, you know, in the supermarkets, my mom would give me like a few quarters where I would play like Cuber or Kangaroo or Miss Pac-Man while she did the grocery shopping. That would keep, keep me entertained. And those are some good memories. That's why I love those three games, I guess. It's interesting where arcade machines popped up. I mean, over here, I always remember seeing arcades in like uh, video rental stores. There'd always be like one or two in there and leisure centers. When we went swimming, we'd always come out and there was like a, a golden axe cabinet. And we'd always have like an hour on that after. It was really random, really. Yeah, that is pretty random. I mean, they they pop up in places like that here too, like 7-Elevens, which is a convenience store. And places like that, they'd be like almost everywhere. Places would all, always have like one or two machines for to make a little bit of extra money, I guess. So what was the first system you got at home then yourself? The Sega Master System. Yeah, I was going to say, that wasn't that successful in America compared to over here. No, it was not. And, you know, it, it didn't really bother me because, um, like I said, I, I preferred Sega's games in the arcades. I really liked what they were doing there. And they had a lot of the same games on the Master System. I was like, yeah, I've got to get that. And so I, I didn't care. I mean, Nintendo, yeah, that was cool. I would have loved to have that, have that too at the time. I, I, I was envious of a lot of its games, but I had to go. I had to start out with Sega anyway. What were the uh, standout games for you for the Master System and also in the arcade for Sega? Uh, the the games that made me choose the Sega Master System were Space Harriers specifically and Outrun. And I always loved Sega arcades as well. I mean, they seemed like they were really innovative back then. Do you remember stuff like the um, the Sega R360? Right. I never got to play that in real life. I've seen one, but it was down for repairs, sadly, so I never got to play it. I remember seeing that one, and then there was um, a hologram game called A Time Traveler that I remember seeing around the same time as well. Right, I've seen that, and uh, it was, I never played it. I just looked at other people playing it, and I was like, yeah, I'll pass. It's, it's, <laughs> it's fine just to watch. Again, but it, it really felt like Sega were like, you know, pushing the envelope and just trying different things in that era, which I did like. Yeah, I, I like that too. They, they always seem to be on the technical technological cutting edge. And obviously, you know, having the Master System, I guess a lot of kids at your school probably had the NES. I mean, was was there much rivalry in that regard? Uh, there was a little. Um, my friend had an NES. Well, two of my friends had an NES, and I went and got a Sega Master System that Christmas. And so I made uh, one of my friends a videotape 
of me, you know, playing some of the Sega games. And he brought the videotape back the next day and he said, oh man, that, the graphics in the space area are awesome. Then a couple of weeks later, maybe uh, his parents bought him a Sega Master System. So at least I had someone else to share some Sega games with. Was there much kind of like media around in your youth? Was there many magazines, any like big TV shows or anything where you grew up? Uh, mainly just video game magazines. And I loved those. You know, every time one would come out, I'd just read it cover to cover. And it was immensely entertaining to read for me back then. Uh, for TV shows, uh, eventually they came out with something called Video Power. And then there was Game Pro TV. And then there was a few other things like Nick Arcade. But I didn't have cable, so I didn't see it at the time. So I, mainly I'd watch Video Power and Game Pro, which were okay TV shows. Well, I heard that you worked in a cinema I mean, did that get get you into films and film work? Yeah, I mean, I was a projectionist for a very, very long time, and I loved, you know, doing everything technical, and, and we'd have to put the movies together and take them apart when they're done, and that was always very fun to me, and just trying to keep everything as clean and as pristine as possible, because a lot of uh, theaters would just let their prints get very, very, very dirty and scratched and stuff, and we kind of took pride in keeping them clean and unscratched. I don't know. I just like the creative arts, if you want to call it arts, stuff like that. And I've always been into video editing ever since I got, ever since I had a uh, camcorder, which I got probably in like a year, within a year, less than a year after I graduated high school. And how were you editing then? Was it like a video to video machines? and a- <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Well, at first I would just edit in camera as I shot. It's like, okay, that seems bad. Rewind the camera and then just shoot it again and then just record it straight onto a VHS machine. And then eventually I was like editing from the camera to the VHS machine and back and doing a little bit more fancy stuff. Now, do you look at that, though, and think how spoiled we are today with, you know, digital video editing suites, how long it used to take? Right. I mean, I love, I mean, when, once once I got into nonlinear editing is like my world was changed. I just loved everything about it. It's just like, I, it's hard to describe, but I could just feel the, the, man, I don't even know how to, what words to say, but it was just amazing. Just the the growth in the industry at the time, it was just amazing to experience. And I loved it. About now, like we said earlier on, about 10 years ago, you started uh, GameSack. And am I right in thinking that you and Dave started it together? Um, and I, um, how did you and Dave meet? Because if, I'm a big fan of GameSack. And obviously, you have a few kind of like home video kind of footage of you guys playing Sega and stuff back in the day. How did that all kind of come about? Well, we met in high school freshman year. So, yeah. And uh, like I said earlier, I got my camera not long my first camera not long after high school. So we'd mess around with that and making stupid videos, very, very similar to what you see in our end skits. And uh, we just liked doing that. And we did that for years and years and years. Once, you know, YouTube rolled around, that was there for a couple of years, few years, however long it was. And um, we decided, hey, maybe we could do this, a video game show or something because other people were doing it and they were getting good views. And it's like, hey, maybe we could, you know, we think we're entertaining. So so we we, we decided to do it. And uh, we thought of the name of the show on the day we shot the first episode. And uh, we didn't know exactly what we wanted with the show. Just talk about video games in our own style, I guess. And uh, then we just kept doing them week after week. And uh, it grew. That's awesome. Yeah. I was, I was going to say, the next question we've got is, where did you come up with the name GameSack? 
and the idea of what's in the sack. Yeah, well, it, we we kind of wanted to be slightly vulgar because you know that's that's our that's our humor, and uh, at the same time, uh, the other one that we were throwing around, and I'm so glad we didn't choose this, was Game Scrotum. <laughs> it's not got the same ring to it, has it? Yeah, yeah. So memorable, like, memorable. <laughs> right. But so is Game Sack. I mean, maybe not quite as memorable, but at least people will like kind of get a connotation. But it, at the same time, we could also say, hey, you know, we're pulling games out of the Game Sack. So it kind of has a double meaning and you don't have to be as explicitly vulgar. There's If we had called it Game Scrotum, there would be no way the show would be would have taken off because YouTube landscape really changed since back then when everything was just, you know, vulgar. Well, what kind of channels inspired you originally then? Who were you watching before you started? I watched a lot of AVGN. I mean, I, he didn't really, his style didn't really have any influence on what we did. We just kind of wanted to do our thing. But as far as video games go, that was pretty much all I watched. I'd watch the occasional other person's video. They didn't have like huge channels or anything, but, you know, someone would upload a video about their favorite game and talking about it. And then I see they get like 5,000 views. I'm like, hey, man, maybe we can do that. I was going to say, a lot of people seem to start with AVGN just because he was so huge, but it's always that like nice breath of fresh air to not see like, you know, people like just trying to copy it, you know, and that's one of the things I really do like about GameSack. I mean, I only came across you guys a couple of years ago. But it's, you know, it's fresh. You're not shouting at the games or anything like mm-hmm. that. Um, and I also love your collection. Is there any sort of like Holy Grail games or anything like that or any cool stories behind any Holy Grail games that you may have got a hold of? Probably my biggest Holy Grail, so to speak, would be uh, Neo Turf Masters on the Neo Geo, which is a very, very, very expensive game for whatever reason. I don't know. Um, I was able to get that for $200 back in the day, and uh, which is still a lot of money. But for a Neo Geo game, it was, it, was, it was about average at the time. I mean, I've had it for probably 15 years, maybe a little more. I, d- I didn't even know that game existed for the longest time because I, I played it on the Neo Geo Pocket Color. I, I'd owned it on that, and I loved the game on that. And it's like it wasn't until years and years later I learned there was a Neo Geo proper version of it. And I played it, I think, on an emulator. I was like, wow, this is amazing. And then you know, I saw that come up for sale, and I snatched it. And it's just like, man, I really, it's a golf game. It shouldn't be this fun, but it is. With Neo Geo, like, I don't know about with you, but in the UK, it's really, really, you know, hard to get a hold of console, hard to get a, get a hold of hardware. And you guys, you, well, you, you do some brilliant uh, Neo Geo uh, episodes. How did that kind of come about? How did you start your collection of Neo Geo? How did you find out about it? Well, back in the day, um, they advertised or there was, they did advertise in video game magazines, but there was articles about it beforehand saying, hey, this is this Neo Geo system is coming out. It's the same exact games in the arcade, but it's going to be rental only. So once it finally was available uh, to rent, I did end up renting the system in a couple of games uh, two different on two different occasions. And I was like, this is awesome. I'd love to own it. And then it finally went on sale. And, you know, the system was like 500 or $600 or something like that. And the game for 200 to 250 a piece is like, okay, well, that's just not going to happen. And then later on in life, I, you know, became employed and uh, <laughs> started saving up money. And th- this was well after, you know, the, the whole eBay thing started coming around and prices started going down. 
amazingly. So I, I bought a used Neo Geo from somewhere on eBay, I believe. And, uh, I I can't remember how much it costs, but I want to say around 200 or so, which was pretty good. I don't know how much they cost these days. And then the games, I, I bought a bunch of games and like, there's only a few games that I spent more than a hundred dollars on. Oh, wow. And so, so I was like, woohoo. And nowadays those games like, like magician Lord, which is a really good game for what it is an early game. I bought that. It was like almost brand new and it was like $35 when I bought it. And that, that thing's <laughs> like going for like over a hundred dollars at least now, I think. You know, to me, the Neo Geo, I remember kids at school talking about it and it was kind of one of those systems that, you know, everybody knew someone who's like, you know, far removed cousin had a Neo Geo who had never came to town. It was, I didn't believe it existed for years. It was like, right. it was like a rich kid system. Right. It definitely was. I got into it recently though, because I got the Neo Geo CD, which I kind of, I watched your video on that and that kind of did seem like, even though the loading times are slow, it kind of felt like it was a, an easy way to get into Neo Geo. It really is. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the Neo Geo CD. And honestly, the loading times at least on the system I played, it didn't seem that bad. Well, your videos are obviously highly polished, and I always love the stop-motion animation that you do in there as well. Awesome What's things. kind of the back... How did that kind of come about then? And is that something you've done for years then? And why yeah. did you include that in the videos? Yeah, um, I've, I've been doing animation for as long as I've been able to, since I've got my first camera, in fact. I have a like a little, I don't know if you guys had Silly Putty over there, but it's kind of like a, uh, I did little animations with that. Like the same week I I got my camera just because I could. And I've always been fascinated with animation and animating things. I wanted to be an animator for the longest time. So it's just kind of a very me thing to do, I guess. Just, I like to be creative. I like to do stuff like that if I can. Tell us a bit about the process and how, how do you kind of go about doing that with modern technology? Uh, with modern technology, it's a little bit easier um, because, well, I use a, a DSLR camera to take individual still pictures of everything. And back then I just use a video camera and just press, you know, record, stop really, really fast or whatever. And then, but with the digital still camera, I can just, you know, throw them in the, on the computer and I can, you know, decide how fast I want them to play and, and stuff like that. So there's a lot more control. And back then though, it, it was like really complex. Cause I'd like, I had, I had the super VHS VCR and I had to do this special trick with rewinding it and pressing buttons at the same time. Or I, I can't even remember exactly how I did it, but it was complex because if I didn't do it a certain way, then the next frame would either overwrite the one before or would come too late and it was, it was just a mess but nowadays it's a lot easier with the tools we have what capture devices do you use and uh is there any certain like any consoles you have like difficulties with capturing for uh yeah i have both an elgato hd60 non-s which means it has the h.264 encoder built into it and i also have an elgato 4K 60S Plus, which is their brand new standalone thing, which, you know, you don't even need a, a computer. You can just record it straight to an SD card. And it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, the only thing is, is with the 4K 60S Plus, it doesn't like it, Super Nintendo or Nintendo or NES because those two systems run at a slightly higher 
uh, and we're talking very slightly, like the NTSC standard is 59.94 hertz instead of an even 60. I mean, that, that's a whole nother oh, discussion. I didn't know that. <laughs> but the NES and the SNES run at like 60.03 hertz. So they're a little faster. So I can record to the 4K 60S plus, but then the sound gets out of sync. So I have to record those with the Elgato HD 60, which for whatever reason doesn't have that problem. Which is too bad too, because a 4K 60S Plus makes much higher quality recordings. I really thought you were going to say like some really obscure co- game console that I'd never <laughs> heard of or something <laughs> would be like the most difficult to record for. Well, it, it's, I mean, you're not far off because there's a lot of arcade PCBs that I have and they run at all wackadoodle refresh rates and they can go down as low as 57 hertz. And it's like, how do you even record that? And, um, those are probably the toughest, but I don't have to do those very often. And there's been a few, like when I had the, uh, what, what is that? The Amiga CD 32, mm. that was the PAL version that I had. So it's running at 50 Hertz and it's like, I can re I can capture it that, but it's, it's kind of odd. And, uh, you know, I could, I had a monitor that accepts PAL too, but it, it was just kind of odd. And I had to edit it all in a 60 frames per second uh, format, I believe. I can't remember exactly what I did, but I think there was something a little weird. And another time, there was like an N64 game, like Ta- Tasmania. Oh, yeah. And, I think, <laughs> and it was like unreleased, and uh, but only in, in the PAL region. The the PAL region was... Re- or Wait, no, 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 no. It, it was released, but only in the PAL region. Right. And... and uh, so I had to record that, but I'm playing it on my Nintendo 64 and it's coming across in black and white. And so I had to modify my console for RGB and then it recorded just fine uh, 50 frames per second in color. And that's how I had to do that one. That is commitment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you mentioned the uh, CD32 episode you didn't. To me, that is one of my uh, you know highlights of all the videos that you've done. I really enjoyed that episode because uh, you know, I, I had an Amiga as a kid and, you know, I've got a couple of CD32s here as well. And I enjoyed the fact that you guys came into the system with kind of fresh eyes. And I thought that was quite an interesting journey to watch. That's good. I mean... I, I've always thought the system was interesting that, that, and there's another one you guys had, um, the name escapes me now. It might be the Amstrad. Yeah. Um, they were that, uh, did the Koenigs ever came, come out over there? It never did. No, the, the Amstrad was a GX 4000. Yeah. That got released in 1990. The Koenigs, that was just, uh, you know, it was a vaporware essentially never got released though. Yeah. Cause that, the, those two were the ones that always fascinated me that I never really heard much about after an initial blurb in the U S magazines. Yeah. Cause I think the, um, the crew behind the, the Koenigs actually went on to work on the Jaguar if I remember correctly. Really? Team, yeah. So, uh, I mean, there's a lot of interesting kind of lineage there. But actually, you know, speaking of the Jaguar as well, I mean, I always like, I'm a bit weird in, in some respects that I actually enjoy exploring kind of failed systems just because <laughs> yeah. it feels like, you know, they're kind of an untapped kind of resource. I mean, do you have any like, you know, guilty pleasures? Oh, sure. I mean, like the TurboGrafx-16, um, which was wildly popular in Japan, but here not so much. And yeah, I, I kind of actually do like underdogs because a lot of times it feels like they try harder and uh, they're taken for granted. And there's a lot of good games on those those things. 
Yeah, and I think whenever you look at a system that didn't do that well, kind of the story behind it, the fact that, you know, a group of people went in every day, you know, put all this time and effort into it, and they put their whole life into making this system, and then it's kind of kind of like failed dreams in a way, isn't it? You kind of know yeah. all the heart and soul went into it, but it just didn't work out, I think. There's something kind of, you know, it's tragic, obviously, but really interesting about those stories. Indeed. You uh, mentioned earlier your arcade PCB boards and how hard they are to capture for and stuff. Um, I love your arcade PCB episode and just find them fascinating. How did that come about? How did you start collecting them and stuff? Because that's not something I've ever looked into or considered myself. Um, and always a little bit jealous when I see somebody even has one, let alone, you know, a handful of them. Right. Um, I never, I mean, I always wanted to, but I'd never like really made a commitment. It's like, yeah, I think I'm going to get into this. So what happened was there was some fan, uh, I forget his name right now. Apologies if he happens to be listening, um, said, oh, I have these two spare uh, games um, and it was the soccer game and the, the little tile flipping game. He's like, I'll send them to you. It's like, okay, but I don't have a super gun, which is what you need to play arcade PCBs on your TV. And it's like, I told him I don't have one. It's like, well, too bad. I'm sending these to you anyway. It's like, well, okay, I guess <laughs> I need to get a super gun. And then, and then I did. I was like, okay, this is pretty cool. So I started just scouring ebay and and whatnot and picking up a few cheap games that you know i'd actually want to play and just kept going i have like 11 or 12 games now and yeah obviously with like nearly a decade worth of videos under your belt i mean kind of personally for you what's kind of been like your favorite video to work on on your favorite console to cover favorite console to cover i think might have been the uh sharp x sixty-eight thousand, just because it's so weird and and bizarre and big and it's, you know, it's lots of great games on that thing that are, you know, like they'll have better versions of what eventually came to like the Sega CD or, or the Genesis or Mega Drive or whatever. And it's just interesting to play those games and all the modules you can uh, attach to it and just how much space that thing took up. Um, the favorite videos I like to work on, probably the more creative ones, like the 16-bit FMV Madness, where we're actually... The video of us is actually running off of a real Sega CD. I remember and, that one. And also, like, uh, the Let's Make a YouTube Show was really fun. And same with the Claymation episode and also a very WTF episode, which is... I've got, the, to, ask, I've got to ask about the the video running on the Sega CD. I watched that and I didn't know whether it was some kind of, you know, trickery. You just kind of put... That, that actually was real. How, how did you make that? Run on the Sega CD. A gentleman by the name of Brian G. Van Buren was able to create some encoding software. And so I sent him the videos and he encoded it and sent me back a file that I could burn onto a disc and just play off of my CD or my Sega CD. And um, so I did and he did that. And I captured the footage as I played off of my Sega CD. And I was just, it was just, Seeing yourself running on your the video game system that you've had for so many years, it's, it's a trip, let me tell you. <laughs> it's like I never thought I'd be on my very own video game system. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet watching that felt miles better than seeing yourself on YouTube. I bet it was much more of a buzz. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think, I believe I I have that available for download at the, the gamesack.net site, and you can just run it on your Sega CD if it's NTSC compatible. See, our Joe's in a metal band, and I've been trying to convince him to bring out his next single as like a Sega CD 
release, and I think that, that'd be you get loads of attention. <laughs> I'm gonna have to try that now. <laughs> so uh, obviously, in the show, you joke a lot about being a big Sega fan. Do you mm-hmm. have any like favorite third party developers or any go to developers? Uh, I mean, it varies. I, I there's a lot of them I like. You know, Treasure, Capcom, Konami. Although I don't feel Capcom or Konami did their best on the Genesis slash Mega Drive. Um, Technosoft, I really love everything they used to do back when they existed just because it felt like they were very, very passionate about what they did. It's too bad. They're no longer around, but those are the ones who mainly jumped to mind. One episode of yours I really, really enjoyed was the, uh, the Tude episode you did talking about like the, <laughs> the attitude era in like the early nineties. I mean, you know, just kind of remembering stuff like that. I'd kind of completely, you know, obviously you remember the games, but kind of the fact that that was such an in thing at the time, kind of, you know, I'd forgotten about it till I watched your video kind of tapping into cultural aspects and stuff as well. That must've been a fun episode to work on. Was it? Oh, it really was. I, in fact, that's another one of my favorite episodes to make because it was just, just being crazy for the sake of being crazy <laughs> was just so much fun. It's, it's it's always fun when it's just not the status quo episode. Not that those episodes aren't fun to make, but it's it's more fun to make episodes like that. Even characters like Gex, I mean, he, he doesn't get enough love these days. <laughs> right. <laughs> Are you uh, planning on doing any more versus videos or like maybe an Amiga versus Atari video? Amiga versus Atari video would be crazy. <laughs> I, I think I, I would I would have to cover the systems as a standalone episode first. But I remember looking like the only exposure to those two systems that I personally had back in the day was seeing the magazine advertisements and, you know, they'd show the games like, here's the Atari ST, here's the Amiga version. I'm like, wow, they're really close to each other. And I, I always wanted to play them. To this day, I don't think I've ever played an Atari ST. I did I've work. got an Atari ST. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of just an Amiga with um, with crap sound, really. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's sad. Yeah, the only time I, I finally was able to work with an Amiga and when I went to my friend's art school, I was able to screw around with an Amiga there doing a graphic arts program. And then he eventually bought one along with a video toaster. Mm. And uh, that was kind of amazing. Because they were used quite heavily in video over there, weren't they? Yeah. I mean, video toaster was, I think... What's his name? Uh, Tony Hawk was involved in helping create and market that back before he was a big skateboard guy. And he also did, he also edited videos for like the Turbo Graphics marketing over here. It was amazing what that guy did. But yeah, Video Toaster was the thing that I just lusted after back in the day. And he got one. (laughs) I remember reading about them. It it never came out over here. They didn't release a PAL version. But yeah, I still love to get one to this day. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Just to play around with. Yeah, and they had Lightwave 3D. It was like, oh, I wish I could have that. Well, obviously, I mean, you still have Dave on the channel from time to time, but he was obviously your main co-host. Um, mm-hmm. What kind of happened with him leaving the show full-time then, and how have you found it going alone since? Well, you know, he just felt that he, he works a full-time job, and he felt that it was taking away too much of his family time because he has a daughter that's growing up and stuff like that. And during the week, he'd have to record game play and write reviews and then come down on the weekend and shoot the show and, and stuff like that. And he's like, well, you know, I've been thinking about it for a while and I could tell that he had, you know, I could see it in his attitude over the previous few months that he just, you know, he was, he's had enough. And uh, so he's like, well, I, I'd like to, uh, you know, spend more time with my family. I'm like, well, you sure? Yeah. Okay. And uh, so we did one more episode after that. And uh, 
been going alone pretty much ever since. And it's, it's, it's a mixed blessing because, you know, a lot of people miss Dave, of course, which is fine. I can understand that. But at the same time, it's a lot easier for me to do stuff and to decide stuff because I don't, you know, when thinking up an episode topic, I don't have to contact Dave. So, hey, do you have enough games to cover for this topic? Do you, you know, do you want to do that or the other? And there's there's no back and forth there. There's I don't have to wait for him to do his reviews and stuff like that or wait for him to come down to shoot video. I can just shoot it whenever I want. And then I can do a lot of bonus episodes like reviewing the, like recently I reviewed the uh, Mega Everdrive Pro. And I just like, you know, I threw that together. I, I got the review sample in and then I reviewed it or I, I wrote up and did my review and released it the first Sunday I could. And if, if Dave was still around and I wanted him in the episode, that review would take like, you know, at least two more weeks because I'd have to get him in on it. It was really hard to do. I, you know, when you made the announcement that he was leaving, I mean, I, I think the channel is as strong as it ever has been. You know, I think you put out some of your best stuff, you know, on your own. Thank um, you. But, but was it kind of, were you nervous about what the reaction might be from the fans? Yeah. I mean, I knew it would kind of be like, uh, boo, you know, Dave makes a show. I mean, not everyone said that, just a few people. But um, I knew it would be kind of a mixed reaction um, from people. But I also knew that I had to keep going and do the same high caliber episodes we've done before in the same style. And uh, because that was the only way it would make um, make the show, you know, let the show survive. And I think it's worked. Um, I, I'll still get, you know, the occasional person saying like, you, what happened to Dave? Like, you know, they haven't watched the show for over a year or whatever. But uh, other than that, I think it's it's been going pretty good. I was going to say, I, I didn't actually, it took me a while to notice because I actually missed the announcement, the episode where it was announced. And uh, yeah. I didn't notice. And I remember I was just watching it one day because I work from home and I, I put my iPad on and, you know, watch YouTube as I work. And uh, I remember thinking, I was just like, where's he, where's he gone? But I never noticed any sort of drop in quality or anything like that. So I think it's fantastic that you carried on, you know, putting out the same quality of videos and you didn't change your style or anything like that. I think that was probably the best thing you could do. And, you know, I always want to have them on, but even that is kind of uh, a double-edged sword because uh, the more I have them on, the more people start coming, you know, in the comments saying, oh, bring them back, bring them back, bring them back and, and stuff like that. It's like, I do want to have them on. That's his, at the same his decision, time, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, I don't know. Yeah, kind of hinted at then how long it takes to make an episode. What's kind of the average time production starts from, like, you know, thinking of the idea to releasing it on YouTube. How, how long is it for the typical episode? Well, I make the episodes like way, way in advance, like a couple of months before you see them on YouTube, I'm making the episode. Usually, unless it's like a product review where I try to get it out as soon as I can. So I, I think of whatever the idea is, and depending on what it is, it'll take me a few days to record all the gameplay and write the review. And then my least favorite part is recording the voiceover and then editing editing that voiceover into something that flows and then editing the episode and then going recording the talking head segments as I call them. And then after that, I shoot the end skit so that it can usually take about a week and a half to two weeks per episode, depending on how complex it is for like, like uh, the system episodes where I cover a console or a platform. Those take a lot longer because I have to shoot 
an, an overview, which has like complex video things that I don't normally do. So those can take like two and a half to three weeks sometimes. I love the fact that you're so organized with it as well. I think you know, if, if we record an episode a week in advance, we think, we think we're doing well. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, this is for next Friday and we think we're ahead of the curve. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good to have stuff, you know, out there is that you can release while you're still working on other stuff. It, it makes things a lot less stressful. I can, couldn't even imagine if I'm just making the episode now that I'm going to release next week and I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm barely done with it. That and all over. Yeah. And audio is a lot easier to edit than video. Yeah. That's yeah. True. I bet. So, uh, you're closing in on 250,000 subscribers on YouTube and, yeah. uh, which is fantastic. And you touched on there that, you know, Dave had a full-time and jo- full-time job and stuff. Do you have a regular nine till five or is GameSack your full-time job now? Uh, GameSack occupies most of my time. I still do some freelance video editing that is non-GameSack though. Basically my freelance job is just, I'll take what I can get sometimes if I have the time. Um, So GameSack has the priority. Um, I don't necessarily need to do the freelance editing to survive, but I like to sometimes. I like to, because a friend of mine, owns a company who does a lot of that. Not, I'll help him out. Well, you show off, obviously, some incredible hardware and software in your videos. Tell us a bit about your collection then. I mean, how's that come along and how do you kind of keep it all? Do you have like a storage area that you keep it in and how like big my, is your collection? For the game collection, well, it's, it's pretty much what you see on the uh, videos behind me, like uh, when I'm doing the end skits, those crooked bookshelves of <laughs> 8 and 16-bit games. Um, that's pretty much it for those uh, upstairs i have uh my more modern games oh also in my uh the the room where i have the green screen which i record my voiceovers and stuff in i have more retro games those are like 32-bit like playstation xbox and xbox 360 and stuff like that gamecube what have you so so they're kind of scattered all out throughout the house but fortunately there's the climate here is pretty pretty mild so it's there, nothing's going to get too environmentally damaged where they are because yeah, i moved house about a year and a half ago thinking that i had a lot more room and then uh I've, i think i've filled every area of this room i'm in now with a when the room gets bigger you just think i'll buy more stuff i don't feel the same right yeah it's hard <laughs> so like, we i always to- need another bookshelf <laughs> i'm uh, ahead, i was gonna say i'm looking looking at another bookshelf right now but uh I've got a little girl on the way, and uh, I think I'm going to lose the games room in the next couple of years. So I'm holding off by going over shelf at the moment. <laughs> yeah. But uh, is there any, with you being a Sega fanboy, is there any kind of like Nintendo versions of games you were jealous of, but you kind of wish came out on the Sega? Oh, lots. I mean, because like I said, towards the start of the show, um, I made a friend a videotape of the Sega games. Well, he made me videotapes of the NES games that he had. So I was just like, oh, Blaster Master, that's awesome. Castlevania, oh, man, Mega Man 2, that's awesome. I want that on Sega. And, and yeah, those games are those games are just incredibly cool. Um, but, like, there's even some, like, Super Nintendo versions that I think are better than the Genesis versions, for sure, like Sunset Riders. I much, much, much prefer on the Super Nintendo. And there's a lot of games like that, actually. So I, it's not like I think Nintendo is bad in any way, shape, or form, because they're not. It's just I have a little soft spot for Sega. <laughs> yeah, because we were talking on our podcast last week. There's like a, a new release of Street Fighter 2 
or the Genesis, you know, like a fan has kind of upgraded it to be kind of as good as the arcade version. And uh, yeah, we were talking about that. Yeah. yeah. And it, it's really, it looks impressive. And we were talking last week about, you know, the fact that to me, that was always like a, a Super Nintendo game. But our Joe, you know, he was saying that, you know, you, you grew up playing it on the, the Genesis. So to him, that was like the proper version. But it seemed like, you know, <laughs> back then it was, it was quite a big difference in the platforms that you don't really get today. Really? I mean, the Street Fighter on the Super Nintendo in a lot of ways, you know, just blew away the Genesis versions. And what I think Pyron did with that and what others have done with their Street Fighter 2 hacks, because there's a lot, um, they just made the game so much better to play on on the Genesis. And I much prefer the Genesis six-button controller. Hmm. And um, so with the, the color hacks and the sound hacks, which make the voices sound much more tolerable than they were, uh, it's definitely a much more enjoyable experience. I just wish we could have had that experience back when the games originally came out. And I don't think, I mean, I think if we could have, a lot of people wouldn't have crapped on Sega as much as they did. I was always a massive Sega fanboy, and I was just going to say maybe it was just naivety for me when I was a lot younger. But uh, I think I'm going to jump on what you just said there and just say I much preferred the six-button controller as well. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So uh, I see you've been uh, streaming recently. Is that something you want to get into more? Not really. I mean, it's kind of kind of a pain to set up for me um, okay. just because I'm more set up for content. I, I don't know if I'd call it content creation because that's, that's not fair to streamers. I would call it, I don't know what I would call what I do versus streaming, but I'm more set up for that. And um, streaming, I have to put, it's, it's really hard because I have to set up some sort of monitor so I can view the chat and I have to move the camera in a different place. And it's, it's, it's honestly kind of stressful. I don't know how people deal with it. In terms of like, you know, the content that you cover, I mean, do you kind of have like a, a cutoff point for retro, what you kind of consider retro, like a, a date maybe? Uh, not really. I mean, I haven't really covered much of like, say, the Atari eras, you know, the stuff before the NES, hmm. um, mainly because, well, two reasons. I I didn't play it that much. I played it a little. And also... I don't know how interested people would be to see it. I know some people would be really interested. I understand that, but I don't know how many of those people there are. And I don't know how much interest I could feign in games that are so incredibly simple. that You know, once you've seen one screen, you've seen the game. Um, As far as going forward, I don't know where you'd say. I I would say PlayStation 2 is definitely retro. Mm -hmm. Um, PlayStation 3, I don't think it's retro yet. Um, but I'm still covering it. I still cover games on PlayStation 3, PlayStation 4. I don't care. If it's a good game, I'll cover it. If it fits the theme of whatever I'm talking about in that episode. And to me, a video game's a video game, just as long as it's good. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, when they're talking about classic cars, it's generally like 20 years, isn't it? Which I think for me, in terms of like, you know, describing something as retro, that kind of 20-year mark kind of works for me, I think. No, I, I, I totally agree. I think, uh, like you say, if it's a good game and it's worth covering, then absolutely cover it. You know, we we didn't used to kind of talk around talk about the early two thousands when we first started the podcast, but you know, it's really creeping its way in now. <laughs> so we are yeah. talking more about Xbox and PS two and stuff like that. So yeah, um, and Dreamcast. Yeah, no, I love the Dreamcast. We're, we're all three of us. We've not got Ravi on right now, but we're all massive fans of the Dreamcast. <laughs> awesome. I mean, did you look at the Dreamcast? Obviously, as a Sega fan, I mean, that must have been a bit bittersweet. Like this amazing console coming out, and then the fact that it kind of ended there. You know, hardware. Vision. Oh yeah, that was that was all sorts of awful. I mean, that was just like 
the Dreamcast was just crazy because when it launched, at least when it launched over here, it was an amazing success. I mean, there was, I've never seen, I went to the midnight launch of that thing and there was a line that went through the mall and out the mall uh, to get into the store to buy one. And I don't know how they had enough, but they did. And uh, even though you, you know, reserved one in advance, which I did. So they must've gotten a ton in. And that was the biggest launch for video games ever to my knowledge. And games would come out and lots of good games and they kept coming and coming. And then all of a sudden it's like, Oh, the dreamcast isn't, I, I don't know exactly what they're announced, how they announced it, but they they were just saying, yeah, we're, we're just not going to do it anymore. We're not, we're going to get out of the console business. And it was just like a, a kick in the enthusiasm. It's just like, well, I don't know how enthused about video games I can be. I mean, I, I still remained enthusiastic about video games, but there was a time there where it's like nothing's happening in the video game land. And uh, it took a while before like I really got into the Xbox and, uh, and I really like that system. But there was a while there where it's just like I wasn't very excited about games. It was sad to see Sega exit the hardware division because, because, I mean, I looked at that system then and I thought it was a great console. And I know today pretty much everyone we talk to, every retro gaming fan I know, thinks the Dreamcast is like one of their top five systems of all time. It kind of feels a bit like, you know, we didn't, generally, gamers didn't appreciate what they had at the time. I kind of felt like a lot of people I knew were always like kind of, they knew the PS2 was coming up and it's going to have a DVD drive. So they kind of overlooked the Dreamcast. Right, exactly. And now nowadays, people just look back on the Dreamcast for the games. They don't care if it has a DVD drive or not. No one's going to want to play their DVDs in their Dreamcast or even their PS2. So that's not even a point of contention anymore. It's just like you look at the games and only the games. And when you do that, the Dreamcast is you know it's pretty nice. It's uh, interesting you mentioned about the launch of the Dreamcast as well because of I mean I was I was still at school uh, when the Dreamcast came out. Um, but I totally agree here in the UK, it was such a huge marketing campaign about it. You know, there was adverts on TV all over the magazines and just, you know, mainstream TV always about how it was online and everything. So yeah, real shame to see it, uh, see it flop like that. Well, it flopped in the UK anyway. Yeah, it was, it was really ahead of its time for Mm. what it was trying to do, I think. Yeah. What do you think of kind of Sega's recent announcements? I mean, obviously they've kind of been looking at their legacy. You know, we've had the uh, the Astro City Mini announcement recently, the uh, the Game Gear Mini that I thought was quite a curious announcement. We've also had the you know, the Cloud Gaming they're doing too. What do you kind of think of Sega's direction at the moment? Yeah, I mean, there's Sega. There, there's there's you know, I'm glad they're not dead. I guess um, the Game Gear Mini announcement was like. Okay, but <laughs> but but the Astro City thing, I'm actually thinking that's kind of cool because it's their actual arcade games. Now, I don't think they've announced every game that's going to be out, in on that, but I'm looking forward to it. I mean, I hope they bring it out in, in places other than Japan, but uh, I'm going to pre-order it from Japan anyway, just in case. But I think that's really cool that they're they're doing that. I just hope the emulation is is good. It does kind of feel like Sega are kind of taking their past a bit more seriously now and like kind of giving the fans a bit of what they want at least. Yeah. You know what I want though? I want a real fantasy star game, not a fantasy star online. I want a real fantasy star. That's an actual RPG. Yeah. There's so much they could do. They've got so many great IPs. They just sit on that. Surely they've got to kind of, you know, whether we just need to keep nagging them or what, I don't know, but it feels like there's a lot there that they could be doing. Yeah. I think they know it, but you know, they can only do so much at a time. So we'll see, I guess. 
Well, Joe, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I mean, what's kind of coming up on the channel and what videos can we look forward to over the next few weeks? So that means the next episode I will have out should be the PlayStation Portable. Um, so that was fun to make. No, was it? Is it the PlayStation Portable? I think it is. I kind of check my calendar. So I have so much, <laughs> so much uh, content already made. Yep, Sony PSP coming out on August 2nd. Fantastic. Well, I'm sure that everyone that's listening to our show probably watches GameSack anyway, but we will, of course, put a link in the show notes to the channel for you, know, the like one or two guys that maybe haven't. But keep up the incredible work on the channel, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Oh, it's been great having or being a guest on your on the show. 